After the Virus, Episode 25, brought to you by After the Virus, a Survivorless Journal, available as an ebook or paperback from Amazon.com or locally in Chico, California, at the bookstore. When I began this podcast in November 2020, I frankly couldn't imagine making it all the way to 25 episodes. But as it turns out, creating these short radio plays is an addictive pleasure that I've thoroughly enjoyed. Each episode has been a learning experience, as I've taught myself not only sound editing, but have derived a lot of pleasure from the creative use of sound effects and voice manipulation, and just recently, crafting complicated multi-person dialogue between characters. I hope you've been enjoying listening as much as I have enjoyed creating. For better or worse, Will's journey is almost at its end. Or is it? At the end of episode 24, Laurel was relieved to be leaving the river. Is there anyone else who would prefer the river? She asked. No one spoke up. Very well, then. Get a few hours of sleep while we go get the equipment. This afternoon, we'll transfer everything for the overland journey. An unexpected turn, but I will not miss the river or all of the pain we experienced there. March 9. When we went out to begin transferring our equipment, we were all amazed by what we saw. Two giant green tractors with yellow trailers, an enormous combine harvester with a 20-foot white auger on the front, and a bank-out truck. We can fit about eight people and their stuff into the back of the bank-out truck, about a half dozen in each of the trailers. The rest can cram inside and on top of the combine, announced Sheila. Arrange yourself as you please, and make sure we have ample weaponry in each vehicle. She explained what to expect. It's only about 16 miles to where we can access the shipping channel, but these things only go about four miles an hour. So if everything goes right, we should be there well before morning. If things go sideways, who knows? Think positive and keep your powder dry. She laughed. (laughs) We said farewell to Keisha, Jackson, Lewis, and Rochelle as they slid their boat back into the slough. It was after dark, and the moon was nearly full, so we were able to run without lights. The four vehicles made a startling amount of noise when started, and we looked at each other wondering how we might remain undetected despite the racket. But we had made our choice, so we loaded up the vehicles in gear. Sheila was riding shotgun in the lead vehicle, the combine that was driven by Miguel, and all three remaining vehicles were being driven by members of the Fremont group who knew the area and the equipment. Will and I and Ethan decided to stick together and were in the trailer behind one of the tractors, the second vehicle in the convoy. We had weapons pointing in all directions and were scanning the horizon for lights or anything that might suggest danger. The ride was surprisingly comfortable atop all of our gear, except when we had to cross a check or a ditch or a road. We continuously veered right or left to avoid fences and canals. While the tractors and truck were able to negotiate most minor obstacles, the big combine had trouble with most ditches and had to take wide detours regularly. 
Don't know why we even bothered with that big old thing, complained Will. We soon found out just how useful it was. We had been driving for about two hours when we could see headlights approaching fast from in front of us. A large four-door pickup truck stopped a couple hundred yards ahead of us. The angle made it impossible for us to shoot with the combine right in front of us. Six men got out of the truck and started firing at our convoy. The combine was taking almost all the hits, and we intentionally stayed right behind it for the cover it provided us. The combine crew began firing back, and the men from the pickup scattered and hid throughout the overgrown vegetation and old crop stubble. That was just what the combine driver was hoping for. Even from behind it, we could hear the hydraulic squeal and the giant auger drop into gear as Miguel engaged the harvesting equipment and lowered it to soil level. As the auger began to chew through the vegetation, it came shooting out of a pipe at the rear of the machine, where, if he was really harvesting something, it would be deposited into the bank-out truck. The diesel thundered, and a huge black puff of smoke belched out of the exhaust pipe as the driver gave the machine all the speed he could. Suddenly, the men from the pickup realized their mistake in hiding in the weeds and ran for their truck, but the combine driver had already calculated the angle they would take to get there. As the first man made it to the truck and threw open the door, the cutters at the front of the auger caught him by the pant leg and sucked him into the screw. Sixteen feet to his left, a second man was turning hard to avoid the same fate, but it was too late. There were two deep thuds as the machine worked to thresh a much larger crop than it was designed for. The other men were now running as far from the pickups as possible, firing at us over their shoulders as they ran. This put them perfectly in our sights. All four vehicles opened up with machine guns, our targets made visible by their muzzle blasts as they ran. In no time there was not a single shooter left standing. But just to make sure, the Combine turned and headed to where they had been. Sure enough, a couple of them had been playing dead in the tall weeds, and the sound of the Combine approaching convinced them of the error in that strategy. They made easy targets for our guns, denying the Combine the satisfaction of catching up to them. As for the others, we inadvertently ran over their bodies as we crisscrossed the fields searching for them. The Combine had raised the auger to avoid any more damage to the mechanism. Once convinced that we had eliminated the immediate threat, we halted the machines to assess our condition. What we found was disturbing. Miguel, driving the combine, had been shot at least twice and sustained a couple of serious but non-life-threatening wounds. Sheila, hunkered down next to him, was bloody from the windshield glass, but all of her cuts were superficial. Two others of the Fremont group had been riding atop the machine and were unscathed. The combine itself was leaking hydraulic fluid profusely. The large pickup that the men had come in was untouched, and the keys were still in the ignition. Combine crew, transfer into the pickup truck. Leave the beast here, barked Sheila. Tessa, you come with us and work on Miguel's wounds as we go. The switch was made quickly, and in short order, we were making much better time. Up ahead, we could see a long bridge. I-5 freeway! Our driver yelled. The bypass goes under it! Be watchful and ready for anything! The pickup truck jetted ahead of the group to check out the obstacle while we idled a half mile back. In a short time, we saw the pickup turn our way and signal us with its headlights that all was okay. As we approached, we could see that the raised freeway ahead of us was dotted with craters and holes 
entire portions blown away. Looks like nothing can drive on it. That shuts down a major corridor from the valley to the port, explained Will. The next stretch was easier. We had pretty good dirt roads running in the direction we were headed. In about an hour and a half, we could see another raised freeway. This one, Interstate 80. Just south and east of the freeway, we could see the blocky forms of buildings in the moonlight. West Sacramento! Mostly industrial! Hasn't been a problem, but lots of places for a militia to set up housekeeping here! Shouted the driver. Again, the white pickup surged ahead, but this time drove all the way back to us. Sheila asked us to gather around to discuss what was coming next. The freeway's not a problem. Same condition as I-5. Apparently, travel to north, south, east, and west is mostly being done by surface streets or by air because all of the freeways are out. Hopefully, the shipping channel is not being used for that purpose, said Sheila. Just after we go under the freeway, we hit a marshy area, actually a game preserve. There are numerous canals and ditches which could make passage difficult. If that's the case, we'll abandon the pickup and jump in the trailers with you all. And eventually, we will come to a canal we can't cross with a big fence on the other side of it. We'll have to unload there, wade the canal, cut the fence, and get onto the high levee that borders the shipping canal. Most of you will stay hidden on this side of the levee with the gear while me, Brock, and Chris go steal a boat. I can drive a boat, said Will. Will, I need your expertise and cool head to remain with the rest of the group and keep everyone safe, said Sheila, to which Will assented. I was secretly relieved that Will would be staying here with me. Our mission was clear. We started out once again. Even though we had been told that the freeway above us was safe, everyone kept their heads low as we passed beneath. As promised, the area south of the freeway was marshy and the dirt roads were overgrown and in poor condition. Soon we came to a point where the pickup could go no further. So the five of them, including the wounded Miguel, piled into the trailers with us. Another half hour and we were at the ditch. This being the last we expected to use the tractors and bank out truck, we eased them into the half full canal to disguise them. The water was only about three feet deep, which did not reach the cab or the trailer, so this allowed us to hide in place in the trailers until we had a boat, with camouflage netting helping us to blend into the canal vegetation. We all got out while Brock cut the fence, then followed him up to the top of the levee. There in front of us was a wide, deep canal, used for getting larger ships all the way from San Francisco Bay to the port of Sacramento, bypassing the often shallow and unpredictable Sacramento River Delta. There were no boats or ships to be seen nearby, only the shine of the moon on the still water. The shipyards are about a mile to the east, began Sheila. We'll head up there and somehow get a boat. Hard to say how long we'll be, but we will be back. It is almost noon. Most of us are resting in the trailers or taking turns checking the shipping canal for a boat. They have now been gone for nearly eight hours. 
March 11. I awoke to a shout of, They're here! And all of us in the trailers rushed up to the top of the levee, where we were surprised to see no boat. But instead, our comrades had returned on foot. We've got a boat, said Sheila. But it will be safer for us to board it and move it at night. None of us were thrilled about sitting out in the open for the rest of the daylight hours, but realized the wisdom in the plan. Just after dark, about half our group walked back to the shipyard. The remainder, including me and Will, stayed with the supplies, though we all chose to sit atop the levee and watch for the boat. About an hour later, we saw a large object turn into the channel about a mile away and could hear a soft diesel chugging. A flashlight beam flashed from mid-channel told us that it was our boat. Per our plan, we immediately began shuttling our supplies to the top of the levee. By the time the craft was nearly alongside of us, we had dragged everything to one large pile. The small ship, about 50 to 60 feet long, was a tugboat of sorts, apparently used to push and pull larger boats into and out of their parking places at the docks. It was low to the water, wide and sturdy looking. Painted above the cabin in all capital letters was the name Deliverance. Casting us large, heavy ropes, we were able to pull it very close to the steep bank. Forming a human chain, we passed the supplies from person to person and finally onto the boat. Once aboard, there was room in the cabin for eight to 12 people to stand, the rest of us arranging ourselves along the deck, some standing, some sitting on gas tanks, winches, piles of rope and other boating paraphernalia. We wasted no time in getting underway and traveled at a slow but steady pace, all watchful for any sign of trouble. We had made about 40 miles as the sky began to lighten, with mercifully no sign of enemies. In fact, no buildings, no structures, no vehicles. The shipping channel here was bordered by nothing but agricultural fields, and we were thankful for a night without bloodshed. The shipping channel connects to the Sacramento River in a half mile. The town of Rio Vista and Rio Vista Bridge are just a mile or two below it, announced Sheila as the engines dropped to an idle. We are going to turn into this large slough on River Right and find a place to wait out the daylight hours. I need a couple of people to walk into Rio Vista and scope it out before we pass it by next evening. Will and I volunteered. As we left the channel and pulled into the slough, we sidled up against the bank, and Will and I slipped over the side into thigh-deep water, carrying our packs and armed with handguns, light machine guns, and grenades. It took us about 40 minutes to walk the waterfront road into the town. The sun was just cresting the Sierras far to the east as we reached the first buildings. I've never gotten used to the sight of a town without lights, cars, sounds, or people, but that's what we found at the eastern edge of Rio Vista. We stopped at the corner of each building and checked out the road ahead of us before proceeding. We finally came to the bridge road with the bridge on our left. Suddenly, Will froze and whispered, Watch the towers! Referring to the two towers that controlled the bridge's lift function for allowing large ships through. My jaw dropped as I could clearly see movement and lights through the windows of the towers. They're watching the river. We're going to have to take them out, Will whispered. How? I asked, estimating the height of the towers and the skinny ladders. We can't do it ourselves, Will replied. We're going to have to go back and plan it out. 
Staying out of sight, we made our way back to the deliverance. The boat was across the slough from us, so it took a minute to get their attention. But once we had, they lowered a life raft over the side, and Brock paddled to us and brought us back to the boat. Sheila, Chris, Ethan, Tessa, and Heather, who had been napping, met us on the deck, and we described the scenario at the bridge. The bridge is currently raised about halfway, meaning no wheeled vehicles can cross, but most boats can pass under. This way, they control both forms of potential travel. We're sitting ducks if they control the towers, and we're screwed if they lower the bridge. I don't think deliverance will fit under the bridge in the down position, explained Will. No, it won't, replied Sheila. There's only 18 feet of clearance when the bridge is down, and the top of the boat cabin is 25 feet. I think we need a diversion, something to keep them preoccupied downstream as we prepare to attack them from upstream. After a half hour of heated discussion with many different ideas presented, we settled on sending a few people on foot through the town to a point a half mile or so below the bridge. There they would steal a boat and run it upstream towards the bridge, firing at the towers as they came. While the downstream group created this diversion, two of our people would start firing on them from the shore just downstream of the bridge, confusing them even more. At the same time, Deliverance would position itself mid-river upstream and float with engines off towards the bridge until within range, and then would fire on the shacks atop the towers. We would begin the attack in the half-light 30 minutes after sunset, so we plan on starting at 6 p.m. sharp. It's complicated, and there's a lot that can go wrong, shared Sheila. But we're dead if we don't make it to Oakland, so we might as well fight it out here to which everyone voiced their support. Although it was only around noon, Ethan and Madison volunteered to find and drive the downstream attack boat, while Chris and Ashley prepared to take the sniper positions near the bridge. Who that's left can handle the shoulder-mounted bazookas? Asked Sheila. Will and a man named Thomas from the Fremont group raised their hands. We were ready. While we waited for the others to get into position, we prepped all of our weapons for a frontal attack and fabricated shields from whatever material we could find on the boat, getting ready to sleep for an hour or two before we begin the assault. Thanks again for the pleasure of your company, and don't forget to order the ebook or paperback at Amazon.com or locally in Chico at the bookstore.